Hello, and welcome to The Bench. I'm your host, Henry Dalton. This is a podcast in which I discuss recent high-profile legal cases in the UK, cutting through the noise, highlighting issues, and ultimately explaining why things are the way they are. Today's episode is on the recent last-minute decision of the European Court of Human Rights. It concerns the recently developed offshore refugee processing scheme. Under the scheme, some asylum seekers who arrive in the UK illegally will be sent to Rwanda to have their claims assessed. But on the 14th of June this year, the European Court of Human Rights issued an order which prevented the inaugural Rwandan-bound flight from ever taking off. Next month, the High Court will hear arguments contending that the scheme itself is illegal. On this episode, I focus on the case of one Iraqi refugee known under the pseudonym NSK. For ease of listening, I'll simply refer to him as N. N's story with the law is a complicated one. It involves the High Court, the Court of Appeal, and the European Court of Human Rights. N claimed that he came to the UK to escape torture in Iraq, claims that were substantiated by his doctor. N left Iraq in April 2022. He travelled overland to Turkey and, from there, across continental Europe before arriving in the UK on May the 17th. Seven days after his arrival, the Home Department served him with a notice of intent. In other words, his claim for asylum was likely to be deemed inadmissible, which would mean his deportation to Rwanda would shortly follow. It was, in fact, deemed inadmissible, and his deportation was set for 10.30pm on the 14th of June. But three hours before departure, the authorities were notified that the European court had grounded the flight. By 10.15pm, everyone had been removed from the plane. And by 2am the following morning, the Boeing 767 touched down in Madrid. So that's the spark note summary of events. But it's important to realise that while this was happening, N had petitioned domestic courts to stop his deportation. He'd done so four days previously, on the 10th of June. But the High Court didn't stop the flight, and the Court of Appeal and Supreme Court weren't interested in doing so either. So, having failed all domestic avenues, he petitioned the European Court of Human Rights. The European Court issued what's called a Rule 39 order, which prevents a state party to the Convention, of which the UK is one, from doing something where there is an imminent risk of irreparable damage. Common situations where such risks arise include threats to life and the prospect of torture or inhumane treatment. And this is where it gets a little complicated. The European Court's ruling doesn't mean the end will remain in the UK indefinitely. Similarly, it doesn't mean that his claim for asylum will be processed in the UK either. The Rule 39 order requires that N remain in the UK until three weeks after his case is heard at the High Court. The trial date, for which, is set for the 5th of September, in just under a month. If he's unsuccessful, he could be back on another flight bound for Rwanda by the 26th. Before I continue though, the terminology I use can be quite confusing, so here's a quick clarification. Firstly, the European Convention on Human Rights is also called the Convention, or simply the ECHR. Secondly, the Council of Europe is not to be confused with the European Council. The European Council is a legislative body of the European Union, which is no longer as relevant to the UK as it was three years ago. The Council of Europe, on the other hand, is responsible for the ECHR and the European Court of Human Rights. These are both very relevant to the UK and are the topic of today's episode. Thirdly, I refer to the European Court of Human Rights as simply the European Court. And finally, the Human Rights Act is a domestic piece of UK legislation that implements the ECHR. 
So that's all clear? Good. Now, back to the High Court. This chain of events is fairly complex and confusing. As I mentioned earlier, N's case at the High Court was originally heard on the 10th of June, four days before his scheduled deportation. But the judges in that case were deciding whether or not to prevent that deportation. In the upcoming case, on the 5th of September, the judges will decide whether the Home Secretary has the power to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda. This process is called judicial review. So, does she have that power? Well, up until 2004, it wasn't legal to deport persons with pending asylum seeker claims. Since 2004, asylum seekers with pending claims could be deported for a couple of reasons. The reasons in this case include that N won't be at risk of ill treatment or onward deportation to an unsafe country. It's difficult to make a judgment call about the risk of ill treatment here. Some charities and NGOs believe that he will be at risk, but the governments of both countries contend that he will not. As there haven't been any outward bound flights yet, it's difficult to say. However, the second criterion of onward deportation to an unsafe country is pretty important. A safe country is one where life and liberty aren't threatened because of race, religion, or nationality. A safe country is also a country that won't deport asylum seekers, torture them, or otherwise violate their human rights. For context, all countries within the EEA and EU are listed as safe countries. Rwanda is not. So how did the Home Secretary decide that Rwanda is safe? There were two documents which helped her reach the decision, a Memorandum of Understanding and Notes Verbales. Neither are legally binding, and the Notes Verbales isn't even signed. As I mentioned before, there haven't been any flights to Rwanda yet, so it's difficult to say whether Rwanda really is a safe country. I've attached a link in the description of a tour of an asylum seeker hotel in Kigali, maybe similar to the one that N would have stayed in. Feel free to check it out if you're interested. But back to the court case. The High Court acknowledged that N's deportation to Rwanda was, and I quote, both arduous and distressing. However, allowing the flight to depart was, in the court's view, the course of action that would minimize the risk of prejudice if it turned out to be wrong. In other words, if the court blocked N's deportation and got it wrong, this would give rise to greater prejudice than allowing N's deportation. It was in the public interest to allow the Home Secretary to pursue her policy of deportation until that policy was deemed unlawful. When the Court of Appeal was asked to assess whether the High Court's decision was wrong, it found that the High Court had considered all the relevant factors and reached a reasonable conclusion doing so. And that was that. Until it wasn't. A few short hours before N's flight was due to depart, the European Court of Human Rights did what the High Court did not. N's 10.30pm flight bound for Rwanda never took off. So this begs the question, why does a foreign court exercising a foreign legislative instrument have any sway over domestic UK affairs? The answer to this lies in the post-World War II era. After the devastation of the 1940s, the Allied powers formed the convention's governing body, the Council of Europe. This body then oversaw the drafting of the European Convention of Human Rights ostensibly to ensure what happened during the war would never happen again. The UK has implemented the ECHR in a domestic piece of legislation called the Human Rights Act. For context, there are 47 states which have ratified the ECHR, including Russia, Azerbaijan, and Bosnia and Herzegovina. Rwanda does not feature on this list. 
So what's the political future of the ECHR in Britain? The European Court's 11th hour ruling was unsurprisingly not particularly welcomed by the Home Secretary or the government. In fact, some Conservatives in Westminster have voiced their opposition to it. Exiting the Convention, they say, is a natural step from exiting the EU. After all, if the UK wasn't a Council of Europe member state, and therefore bound by the ECHR, N and many like him would already be in Rwanda. But is exiting the ECHR actually possible? Theoretically, yes, under Article 58. The process itself would be fairly straightforward and only take about six months. The only difficulty in the UK context is the Good Friday Agreement. This agreement guarantees the people of Northern Ireland ECHR rights and access to the European Court. So if the government was to renounce the ECHR and repeal the Human Rights Act outright, the Good Friday Agreement would be heavily undermined. A compromise suggested was the proposal to repeal the Human Rights Act and replace it with a so-called Bill of Rights. On face value, the rights protected on the Bill of Rights would be the same as those protected by the Human Rights Act. The practical difference is that the Bill of Rights increases the complexity of bringing a human rights violation before the court. The effect would essentially be a League of Nations style human rights instrument, but I imagine that is the point. But that isn't to say the European Court will no longer have sway over domestic UK affairs. Some commentators suggest that should this Bill of Rights pass, the influence of the European Court will only increase. This is because individuals will struggle to uphold their rights through the domestic courts and will instead go directly to the European Court, which is exactly what ended. I hope you've enjoyed this whistle-stop tour. Since the start of this year, 18,284 asylum seekers have arrived in the UK by boat. At the time of recording, not one has been sent to Rwanda. It's estimated that the scheme has cost the government a £120 million lump sum and between £20,000 and £30,000 processing fee per asylum seeker. Although the Home Secretary suggests that this will be cheaper than the current system, it's difficult to say as the Rwandan scheme isn't yet operational. But according to Home Office statistics, the current system costs about £1.5 billion a year. If and when Rwandan flights resume, largely depends on the outcome of N's case before the High Court on the 5th of September. I'll release an update to this once the judgment's released. In the meantime, though, if you've enjoyed the episode, please leave a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. The next episode will be uploaded in a fortnight. Until then, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.